1789, George Washington laid his hand on an open Bible with the first president taking the oath of office. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. According to his biography, there wasn't a live camera feed then, but according to his biography, the the oath was read slowly and deliberately. And at the end of the oath, Washington added, I swear, so help me God. Most presidents since then have added that ending, so help me God. Washington then bowed down to his knees and kissed the Bible, reminding him that he served the Lord God in his oath as president. There's other oaths that we see throughout our culture. Uh, If you want to serve in the military, you take an oath to defend the, the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. If you are a doctor, you take the Hippocratic Oath that you will do good for your patients and not seek their their ill. What you've seen throughout the history of our country is that words matter. What you say actually means something. Well, as our nation continues to drift away from its um, roots, I would say that words don't matter as much as they once did. I think they still matter in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, and I think that we can often look out there and see how the, the, the culture uses words maybe flippantly, uh, maybe even coarsely, profanely. And I think that we would say in here in, in, in the church, well, we don't do that. Well, the, 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 this, this epistle from, the, from James, what he is saying, he's saying, no, church, you're not using the words that you should in the right manner. He's already seen this addressing the issues of the tongue. Uh, the, the issues of having salt water and fresh water coming from the same spring. Brothers, this should not be. James knew that the church then and the church today often fall into the trap that we do not use our words in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way, whether that's to our, our spouses, our children, our colleagues, or our fellow church members. James is landing the plane, if you will, in this epistle. Uh, So we want to look at this um, ending. He begins in verse 12, but saying, but above all, meaning that, okay, guys, this is the preacher's way of saying, in conclusion, (laughs) okay? Sometimes we we say that just to trick you that we're going to preach for another 20 minutes, but uh, he really, you can see the end of the page here. So this is the end. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The first point this morning is we want to be careful in our promises. Be careful in your promises. If you, if you look through the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, and if you've, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount kind of plays itself out in, in James' teaching here in this epistle. Many would say that James was there when, when Jesus spoke that sermon. If not there, he probably heard it often in his home. We believe that G, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus has something very similar to there, saying that we should not swear by, uh, by anything in heaven uh, or, or by Jerusalem, or um, but let our yes be yes and let our no be no. 
And yet we know that throughout the, the New Testament, Paul continued to use oaths. Oaths were a very big part in the Old Testament. Some were, were kind of spoken harshly to, to, to not use oaths in a rash way. We've seen several rash or, or harsh um, rash oaths, oaths sorry, in the Old Testament. But we see Paul continuing to use it in his own ministry. He says several times, as God is my witness, as God is my witness. Well, what I think was happening here in, in James is there's a group of people in, in the church who were swearing, not in the terms of using profanity, but they were swearing to God to, to add weight to, to lies that they were committing. Now, you've, I'm sure if you've never done this, you've never said, I swear to God that what I'm telling you is the truth. But none of you would have ever lied by saying that. I remember I was 10 years old, and I was at my friend's um, house, and I was sick, and I didn't want to go home. And I threw up in his, in his bathroom. And I did not clean up as much as I should have. And uh, he discovered that someone threw up in his bathroom. And he only had a couple friends there. So he came to us and he said, did you throw up in, in, in the bathroom? Me and a friend. And of course, I'm ashamed, right? That I just threw up in the bathroom. And I'm already feeling kind of uncomfortable because I shouldn't have done that, right? The awkward 10-year-old boy. And I said, no, I didn't do it. So I'm thinking, okay, all I have to do is deny it, and I'm good. And um, this young man says, if you are telling me the truth, you need to go in front of this. He was uh, not a Christian. You need to go in front of this religious idol, and you need to swear to him that you did not throw up in the bathroom. Really? (laughs) Come on, we have to do that? So I, I said, well, I've already lied. I might as well continue to lie, right? And I swear, I mean, this, this sometimes happens, right? When we get kind of caught into a bind, we, we, we want to up the ante by saying, no, listen, what I'm telling you the truth. So maybe not in, in the biblical terms, we say, I swear on my mother. I swear on my, on my grandmother. What I'm saying is telling you the truth. And what James is saying, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Have a kind of life that when you say yes, you're gonna, it means yes. And when you say no, it means no. You don't need to add something to kind of prove that you're telling the truth. You just need to tell the truth. You just need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Some would think that that's what's happening here in the community. That James is saying, no, listen, you need to be the kind of people where your words matter. I love the story that uh, that Gary told me about his dad. I'm sure I've shared it with you before. And, you know, the he Gary's dad was buying a house and he needed $5,000. So he went to the local uh, grocery store and said, can I have $5,000 loan? And the, the young clerk gave him $5,000. And the, the boss came back and said, hey, um, what's going on? Oh, yeah, um, I, I let out $5,000 to someone today. You gave someone $5,000? You did what? And he's like, well, it was Mr. Huddleston. Oh, okay. No big deal. Why? Because Mr. Huddleston was a man of his word. And because he was a man of his word, he knew that, that if he took 5000 guess what? He's going to bring $5,000 back. That's exactly what James is saying here. If you're going to be a Christian, let your yes be yes and your no be no. God keeps his word. God always keeps his word. And if we are going to be a people of God, we should always keep our word. We should be careful with our promises. This is one of the reasons why we have a church covenant in our church. 
We want words to matter. We want our membership together to mean something. And most church memberships don't mean much. People's, there's a lot of names on a roll, and it's just names on a roll, but we want to have our membership matter. Membership means something. So we have a church covenant. We make promises to one another. We make a promise that we will seek unity in the bond of peace. We make a promise to pray for one another. We make a promise that we will deny un, un, ungodly lust. We make a promise that we will support the ministry of this church. Why? Because words matter. And part of the business of the life of the church is when people don't keep their word, we hold them accountable. Now, we, we, we see that happening all over our, our, our world where people lie and they're never held accountable. Well, in the, in the life of the church, that shouldn't be. We should hold people to their, to their word. You know, I, I think I've always struggled with this in, in, in one particular way. Let me show you, sh- sh- share it to positively and, and I think negatively, or maybe even sinfully. I love people, and I really love this church, right? I love the people of this church. And oftentimes, uh, some, this is kind of more of a confession and a forgiveness, asking for forgiveness at the same time. Oftentimes, you ask me to do things, right? And I think my, my natural desire is to, is to meet those needs, because I don't want to say no to people, right? I want to meet those needs. And sometimes what happens is, is that I, I overpromise, right? I say that I'm going to do something, but I don't always follow through on it. It could be because I'm tired. It could be because I forget. But I'm not always careful with my words, and I overpromise, and I, and I end up not doing it. And I don't think that's a, for the most part, I think it's, it's a genuine desire to want to serve people. But maybe not an understanding of my own, my own limitations. That's the positive side of that. I think the negative side of that is that, I want to be well thought of, and I want people to, to like me. Therefore, I'm unwilling to tell them I can't do something for them. And it's just sinful. It's prideful, right? I'm going to tell you that I want you to think well of me, that I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to hurt you in the end. So listen, I'm not saying that when we think about our words, words matter, but we want to be careful that what we say means something. And you know one of the, one of the problems in the life of a church is people make commitments, they make promises, and they don't follow through on them. I'll be there to teach that class. Class starts, you're not there. Hey, I I will commit to teach every single week or once a week or once a month or whatever it is, and it doesn't happen. I will commit to be a faithful church member by coming to church on Sunday morning. You see him once a month, once every two months. Listen, if we are going to be a a healthy church, we have to be true to our our words. Words matter. This is what James is saying. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to swear upon anything else. Be true to your word. I don't think he's saying that we can never have an oath, but I think he's saying, listen, be a people who are honest and true. The second thing I think we see here, and this is the bulk of our text, is this, this idea of being comprehensive in our prayers. This passage, as he's closing, he really wants to, to guard our words and maybe how we speak in terms of our, our relationship with others. And then he says, listen, how you speak to God. This is what he, what he says in James chapter 5, beginning verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So who's he referring to here? Well, he's referring to the church. He's talking to the church body, the the elect tribes of of Israel, the church. And he says to those who are, are suffering, you know, I, I love how he, how he writes this is because when you walk into a church, there are people dealing with all sorts of things. Some just went to a wedding yesterday, right? If you just ask Jay and Mary, they're cheerful, right? They're married and all that planning and the wedding stress is now over and now they're married and get to enjoy life together. Some of you are coming in here worried about how you're going to pay for Christmas. Some of you are worried that, that of, a, of a test result that you have an appointment to on Thursday and you're not sure what's going to happen. Some of you are worried about parents or grandchildren. Listen, there is a, 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 a myriad of different issues going on right now in the life of the church. And, and, and James is telling each one of you, whatever you're dealing with, giving you what to, what to do. You should pray. If you're suffering, let him pray. This, a lot of the whole book of James is about suffering, is when we're dealing with things that are circumstantial, that are, that are brought upon us, that we um, should go to the Lord in, in prayer. It's those who are, are cheerful. And I think what James is referring, not only those who are having a season of blessing, although it could be that, it's those who are cheerful despite circumstances. They have a cheerful heart. You know, sometimes when you're suffering, God gives you a heart of joy, and you don't even understand why it's there. Sometimes you're suffering, and you can't be happy. You've got to fight for it. And he says, if you're cheerful, sing. The word there, it really, it's, it's, it's really close to the Psalms, right? Salo in the Greek, it's really close to Psalms. This idea of when we, when we pray, when we sing praise unto the Lord, it's like a song of, of prayer unto God. A lot of the songs that we sing are, 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 are prayers that we want to bring before the Lord. And then it says those who are sick. Now this could mean weak, just those who are kind of weak, downtrodden, in, in, in a rough state. But I think the natural reading is those who are sick, those who are physically sick. Now, we are embodied souls. So your spiritual life is going to be affected by your physical life, right? You know, if you are, 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 are healthy and feeling good, you tend to have a, a, a more, maybe a more, um, it's easier to walk with the Lord. When things are difficult physically, sometimes it's harder to walk with God. When your back is, is hurting and you can't get out of bed, sometimes it's hard to pray. Sometimes it's hard to focus. So what, is, what does James say here in verse 14? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I think what he, what, what's happening here is that imagine this scene is there's someone who is, is laying on a bed uh, and can't move, and they say, call the elders. Just a couple thoughts there. I think that James is assuming that there's going to be elders in every church. There's going to be leaders in that church. And those leaders, those elders, are, are meant to, to pray. You know, if you are an elder here or aspire to be an elder, one of the things that you want to see in terms of the job of an elder here is to ignite faith and ignite hope in the people of God right? Because when they're sick, sometimes they can't even pray, and they need someone to pray for them and with them. So let me just say this. If you are sick, if you are dealing with something internally, if you are dealing with something spiritually, please call upon your elders to pray for you. It is never 
a burden. It is never a burden for, for the people, uh, for our elders to pray for you. It's never a burden, right? Some of you feel that I can't share that with my pastor. I don't want to burden them. They're, they're, just, they're just busy. Listen, we would gladly take a break from the busyness of other things to pray for the people of God. It is a great joy to do so. But so, As we see here in the text a little later on, it's sometimes you are called to share those things with, that you're dealing with with others. There's been a lot of controversy of this verse when you kind of see it says, uh, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What is this oil that's used for? So just to kind of give you a, a lot of reading, kind of maybe into a paragraph, uh, some would say that it's medicinal, that they're using the oil to, to, to help them feel better uh, uh, physically, provide some kind of me- medical um, healing. Some would say that it's, it's more symbolic, right? Uh, some would say that maybe, maybe it's a mixture of the two. I think it probably leans more symbolic here. I think what um, James is saying is, listen, sometimes we need physical markers for our faith. And the elders go and they lay their hands on someone who is sick. And they anoint their head with oil by saying, listen, this oil is a symbol that, that we have faith in the healing that God will bring. Now, it's the, we, we can see here in terms of the next verse, it says, the, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That's the goal. It's the prayer of faith. Not the prayer of the faith of the person who is sick, but the elders who are coming around this person uh, to, to ask God to bring physical healing. But it's not physical healing. We, we, the, the, the prayer is when they're prayed over and they're, we put our, the, the oil on, on, their, on their forehead or on their body to, to remind that you have faith that God has the power to heal. As the song that was just sung, that God who is, who is mighty to save, God who is powerful, can heal you, can get you out of bed. It's probably more of a, a physical healing, a physical salvation. But so often in Jesus' ministry, physical salvation is often tied to spiritual salvation. The main goal for, for the elders is to ignite faith that God has the power to heal now and in the life to come to be raised up out of the bed or raised up out of the grave. If you notice that, that the scripture that Bobby read just a few moments ago, this idea of, of faith. Now, the, the prophets of Baal had faith. Did they not? They had faith that Baal would do it. They had so much faith, they started cutting themselves, right? Praying for hours that they would hear. But you notice that little line it said? There was no answer. Nothing but silence. So it's not about how fervently or how passionately you pray. It's the faith in who you pray to. And we pray to a God that hears. We pray to the only God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who who is the triune God who delights to answer the prayers of his people. That has been a refrain in the life of our church over the last three to four weeks. God hears our prayers and delights to answer them. If you're here and you're, you're a non-Christian, I hope you see that, that Christians, our main concern is not happiness only in this life. You know, a lot of times when we're struggling physically, we want to be healed now, but we, we, our ultimate goal is not having a, a, a earthly healing. Our ultimate goal is that when we close our eyes in death, we will raise them in glory. 
uh, a pastor friend um, in the West Coast um, said goodbye to his wife this morning at 2 a.m. He and his wife had been married for years, and uh, six weeks ago, the doctor said she may have eight weeks to live. After three weeks, she stopped recognizing him, stopped recognizing their boys. Pastor, four children. Life changes like that. Did they pray for her healing? Oh God, they prayed for her healing. And yet, she is now fully healed. At 2 a.m. this morning, she closed her eyes in this world and opened them in glory. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I hope that you see that a Christian's main joy is not happiness and healing in this life only. Jesus has called to give us life and life abundantly, but our life, the abundant life of Christ, is ultimately going to be in eternity. Our hope is in heaven. So if you're here and you are not a Christian, I pray that you would, you would see Christian's life and you would see the, how, how fleeting life is, how it's a mist. It's here one minute and gone the next. It's a vapor. And that you would think, what happens next? And I pray you would talk to someone around you what it means to be a, a Christian, to believe in the life after, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you Christian, those of you who are here, right, who love Christ, don't live your life for today. Live your life for that day. Our ultimate goal is not to have happiness and comfort here and now. Our ultimate goal is to, is to make it to the land of, of the blessed, to be in God's presence forevermore. Let, 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 us, let the world see how much we love Jesus and how much we long to have him be there. Beloved, Jesus has not forgotten you. Jesus will never forget you. It's what we celebrate this season. He is our Emmanuel, God with us now and forevermore. And every time we pray prayers of faith, we are trusting in God's sovereignty. We are trusting that God is the one who ultimately decides how things will shake out, whether he brings healing or whether he brings death. We don't know. That is the Lord's decision. That's why Jesus said when he was about to be crucified, not my will, but thy will be done. This is why we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We have no idea how God wants to use our suffering and our sickness and our pain so that the gospel may be spread throughout the world. Sometimes you... In the old days, when you had perfume in those glass bottles, the only way that you could use it is if you crushed it. That's when the fragrance spread. Beloved, sometimes God wants to crush us so the fragrance of the gospel could be radiated to those who are lost around us. Would you be willing to suffer if it meant that your lost brother or your lost child would come to know Jesus? That's what this ideas is getting to. We trust that God is the sovereign one over history. Look what the the text says. It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
So let me be very clear. Not all sin, or not all sin causes sickness. So those of you who are living in, in sin this morning, doesn't mean that you're going to get sick. But it may. There are some sins that you're committing that will cause sickness in your life. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There are some who are living in sin, you know, taking the Lord's Supper. And, and Paul says that they became sick and even died because they were singing against the Lord and taking the Lord's Supper. Sometimes God wants to root out your worldliness and your ungodliness by getting you sick. I can tell you story after story about God giving someone cancer and then, and then being freed from sin because of sickness. That doesn't mean it always works out that way, but sometimes it does. Ultimately, that's, again, the Lord's decision. In any case, whatever you're dealing with, you need to pray. And I think this is so crucial for the life of our church where we are right now is that we need to pray. I don't know what you're dealing with, what you're suffering with, but you need to pray. Every single one of us needs to call upon the Lord to to answer, to meet us. And if all us individually have a vertical, strong relationship with the Lord, we're going to have horizontal unity with each other. There are a number of reasons why you could be suffering right now. It could be personal and financial and jobs. It could be relationships in the, in, in the, in the life of the church. As our church grows, there could be maybe a, a growing discontent in certain areas, right? There's a lot of reasons why we could be suffering, a lot of different kinds of suffering that could be happening. But what is God calling you to do? Pray. Deal with your suffering with him first. And if you can't do it because you're physically unable Call your elders and let them pray with you. That's what he's saying. Not only do we want to have this comprehension, this comprehensiveness in our prayers, number three, we want to have, be confessing in your prayers. Be confessing. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Sometimes you sin against people. Sometimes you do it intentionally. Sometimes you do it unintentionally. And yet sometimes you need to go to that person and you need to confess what I did was wrong. Forgive me. Because we are harboring things against someone that we need to, to deal with it, that we have hurt. So if there's someone in this congregation, someone in your life right now that you know that you have sinned against, I would plead with you to confess your sin to that person. Confess your sin and be healed. Because throughout this, this, this epistle, I think James has two primary concerns. And I think these two primary concerns in this epistle are probably the two primary concerns that we need right now in the life of the church. Number one, Holiness. Everything you see here is about the conduct and character of Christians. They did not need to be taught who Jesus was. They needed to live like who Jesus was, right? And how he lived. It was the holiness of God's people, holiness in their speech, holiness in how they showed no impartiality. We want to be a holy people. The other thing that I think James is is driving home throughout this book is unity. We want to be holy individually, but we want to be unified with each other. It doesn't mean we have to be in uniform agreement with each other. 
because that's never going to happen, right? But you could disagree with each other in love, can't you? And you can have nothing block your relationship with that, that person. Some of you need to confess sin. Some of you things are dealing with things and you've tried to, 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 to deal with it on your own and you haven't been able to. You need to bring it to the light. The only way you can really overcome sin is by confessing it. Now we know from Psalm 90 there are secret sins that you confess to the Lord. Not every sin that you commit in this life, in thought or deed, you have to confess to someone. It doesn't mean that all sins you only confess to God because there are some sins that you have to confess to someone else because that's the only way that they're going to be brought to the light so that you can get healing from it. But here's what I know. You're not going to do that naturally. You're not going to share your, your sin struggles with somebody else. Why? Because you're afraid. You're afraid how people are going to view you. You're afraid how people are going to look at you. But can I just encourage you to, to, to be bold and brave enough and confident in the gospel that whatever sin you have committed, it is paid for by Christ. That's why I love that verse in 1 John 2. My little children, do not sin. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So no matter what sin you think will keep you from the cross, keep you from God, it is, his mercy is more. Which we were going to sing that, by the way. It got changed in the last minute. For the record, but listen, I've been a pastor for only six and a half years as a senior pastor, and I've heard a number of confessions. And listen, nothing surprises me. Why? Well, because I understand the nature of, of, of the heart. We're, we're sinners. We're depraved, right? I understand that. So you're not going to say something to me or one of the other elders that, you're gonna be, that we're going to be shocked by. Sometimes you just need to get it out. And when it's out there, the light of the gospel can now shine and it can give you healing. And I just want to say to those of you who have done that in recent in months, thank you. Thank you for having enough courage to say, I'm struggling with this. I need help. But we also confess sin to bring unity to the body. I think this is extremely hard, but if you're going to have a healthy body, this is what we, we must do. Just a couple ways of thinking about this. If we sin against others, confess that sin. Go to that person and bring healing. But remember that when you, when you confess sin, you still leave scars. It's not like things always can go back to the way they were. Because when you heal, there's a, there's a, there's a scar there. It doesn't mean that you won't be stronger in the end. You know, we know that from uh, Olivia's got her broken arm right now. You know, and the doctor said that, you know, in a, in a year from now, you won't even be able to tell it's broken. Usually bones that are broken, they come back and grow stronger um, afterward. But it doesn't mean that she's always going to have a break there. When others sin against you, forgive them. This is what I think James is getting at. He says, listen, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? Jesus commands you to forgive one another. Jesus says, if you do not forgive one another when they sin against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you when you sin against him. We are called to forgive one another, so do so. You know, you don't have to confront every person who's wronged you. Or you don't have to confront every person who you perceived wronged you. Sometimes you just overlook it. The Bible says love covers over a multitude of sins. Some things you just overlook. 
But if it's getting to a point when you can't overlook it, it's just eating away at you, and you, you can see bitterness grow in your heart, that's when you have to go to that person and seek reconciliation. Beloved, I pray that we would strive to be a church that has, tries to have a clear conscience before God and for one another. We want to have this idea of confessing. And I think this is an area in our church where we can really grow in. You know, people ask me sometimes, you know, we're, I'm, I'm thrilled what God is doing in the life of the church, but there's areas we could grow in, and I believe this is one of them, where we are honestly confessing sin to each other. And I'm not sure how to cultivate that environment. It's hard to do it in a big service like this. If I just said, okay, in this Sunday morning gathering, will you please stand and confess your sins? Nothing would happen, right? It would be kind of an awkward place, right? Find one or two people in your life that you can bring who can really know what's going inside your soul. Because if you don't invite people into your soul, sometimes you wither. And sometimes you're withering away with your walk with God because you're not confessing how bad your relationship with God really is right now. But if you confess it, God will answer that prayer. Lastly, as we close, number four, be committed to your prayers. Be committed to your prayers. Look at this verse again in verse, second half of verse 16. The prayer of the, of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It says the prayer of the righteous person. I think this is a dual meaning. I think that there's, a, there's the righteousness that we have because we're in Christ. Because you belong to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are righteous. As soon as you put your faith in God, you are no longer uh, classified primarily as a sinner, but you are accredited in the righteousness of Christ, and you therefore are righteous. So you could always go to the throne of grace with boldness and confidence because your righteousness is not your own, but it's Christ. Amen. We could always approach the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. And yet, I think it also means you should not expect God to answer your prayers if you're living in sin. I think we, we can kind of see this in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he's speaking about husbands. Talking about husbands living uh, as a, as with their wives, as a co-heir of the inheritance that we will receive. And he says, do that so your prayers may not be hindered. I think what he's trying to say is like, God wants to answer your prayers, but if you're living in sin, why should God answer your prayers? We see that in James chapter 1. The one who doesn't pray in faith, but they're they're tossed to and fro. He's a double-minded man. Why should that man expect that God would answer his prayers? This is all praying with faith, praying praying to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. God has the ability to answer our prayers, and it's him and him alone that does it. It doesn't mean that we don't go to God even in the midst of our sin. That's what I was trying to say, this idea of, of confession. But I don't think that we should expect God to really answer our prayers unless we're trying to live a life for him. But we know that as sometimes our kids are not doing right and we still want to bless them. I think God's the same way with us. But, if, you know, when your kids are doing right, you kind of want to do things for them, right? It's a lot more natural in that, in that sense. And then what we see here is we see an example of Elijah 
Elijah remained steadfast in his prayer. Right For three and a half years, it says he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And we saw that right there at the end. Right, But notice what it says is that Elijah had a nature like ours. Elijah was nothing special. Elijah was a sinner who trusted in the Messiah. Beloved, you are sinners that trust in the Messiah. He had a nature exactly like ours. And guess what? God heard his prayers. Listen, God hears your prayers. I just want you to be committed to those prayers because there are prayers that you need to be, to be, need, need to be reignited in your life, that you have stopped praying because you don't believe that God is listening. Listen, God cares. God cares so intimately for you. He wants to answer those prayers. Don't stop praying them. Whatever that prayer is, if it's for a child, pray that God would would answer that prayer. If it's for a spouse, if it's for a wayward grandchild to, to come back to Christ, don't stop praying. Because the the harvest is coming. We see that in in Elijah's life. You know, we don't have to look just to Elijah and the saints of the Old Testament. You could look to the New Testament. You could look to to Anna or or Epaphras who were known to to wrestle in prayer. You could look throughout church history. You could look to, to George Mueller and Francis Schaeffer. Beloved, you could look in our own church. There are so many godly men and women who have just been faithful and steadfast in praying that God would move. You know, God is doing such an amazing thing in the life of our church. You know, if I think about all the things that have happened in 2018 and all the things that are expected to happen in 2019, beloved, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I talk to other pastors and I share what God is doing and they say, why? I think the answer is very simple. God is answering prayers. But I don't think that he's answering prayers only of of this church as it looks today. I think God is answering the prayers that were prayed in 1970, in 1982, in 1997, when the faithful saints at Park Baptist Church prayed that God would move in this place. You know what I think we're doing? We're just picking low-hanging fruit. We are the recipients of all those blessings. But just think about this. Think about how we pray now could affect our grandchildren in 2050 or our great-grandchildren in in 2080. Beloved, let us be faithful to pray. Why? Because we have a God that wants to answer our prayers. Those of you who are suffering, Pray. Those of you who are cheerful, sing a a song of prayer to the Lord. Those of you who are sick, call upon the elders of your church to pray. Let us look to one another, the faithful saints who have gone before us, who who have remained steadfast in prayer. And beloved, let us do the same. Father, we thank you for being a God who answers our prayer. It's amazing to think that the God who spoke the universe into existence, the transcendent almighty God, has become God with us, Emmanuel. Dead and 
resurrected, sent your Holy Spirit to actually live with us so that we have a direct access to you. God, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would make the people of this church a people of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 91, silent.